My text is found in the last verse of 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. In the 8th and ninth chapters of this second epistle of Paul to the Corinthians, we find Paul speaking about giving to the work of God. Sometimes it's a painful subject, and sometimes preachers are accused of making too much of the importance of giving and putting a stress upon money. And yet here we find two chapters in the Word of God given to this very subject. Paul speaks uh, of uh, the importance of it, and he speaks of the blessing of it, and he speaks of doing it in the right spirit. He tells us that God loves a cheerful giver. And Dr. Paisley used to point out in his preaching that the word cheerful there carries the idea from the Greek of hilarity. God loves a hilarious giver. Uh, We enjoy it so much when our spirit is right uh, that it's no hardship, it's no pain, uh, it's no grief to us to give. We delight. And of course, something else happens. Uh, When we give and maybe help someone else out in our giving, that brings their prayer uh, to God on our behalf. So uh, we not only enjoy doing it, but we gain benefit from it. And if God loves a cheerful giver, then God undoubtedly will bless us if we give to his cause. Now, we don't want uh, to give grudgingly or of necessity. We don't want to give in order that we might not be shown up by the giving of others. We give because it comes from the heart. It's spontaneous when we're walking with God. We want to give and we enjoy giving to the work of God. Now the greatest incentive for giving to the work of God is set before us in this 15th verse of 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Now the majority of the commentators see this gift as Jesus Christ and his glorious salvation. I know that the, uh, Adam Clark, who came really from this area and ministered not far from here, he takes it in a slightly different sense that the unspeakable gift is the grace of God enabling people to give, but the majority see it in a different way. The unspeakable gift that is the greatest incentive to us is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now that word unspeakable is an interesting word. Uh, It has the idea of something that cannot be fully explained, or we might say incomprehensible. We say, how could it be? It is so great, it is so vast. You can talk about it, but you cannot fully explain it. Last year, I was over in Arizona preaching in Phoenix, and my son took me up to the Grand Canyon. And I took some photographs. Now, my photographs in no way do justice to the awesome sight of the Grand Canyon. You stand there, you look down. Well, I I don't go too near the edge, I can tell you. Not that you can get too near the edge, uh, but uh, it is quite uh, amazing. And you cannot capture it unless you're a very expert photographer. And all I had was my mobile phone. I can't do it justice. With my photographs, well, that's just a very faint idea of what is here 
uh, in this 15th verse of 2 Corinthians chapter 9. You, you cannot describe it. The gift is so amazing. The gift is so enormous, we cannot comprehend it. Now, I want to say in the first place that it is incomprehensible because of who it comes from. It comes from God. We read in 2 Samuel chapter 24 of a time of judgment on the nation of Israel. David sinned in numbering the people and God gave him a choice as to what judgment would fall upon him. He left it really in the Lord's hands and God smote the nation. 70,000 people lost their lives. You might say that's unfair if one man was guilty and nobody's innocent. And the 70,000 who lost their lives were not, you might say, innocent people. To David they were innocent, but to God they weren't. And when the angel came to smite Jerusalem, David pleaded. And God sent the prophet Gad. Gad came and he told David what he had to do. Uh, to go to the threshing floor of Aaron of the Jebusite and to make a sacrifice there at that place. David went to Arona and he offered to purchase a threshing floor and to offer sacrifice there. And Arona, well, he did receive money for it later. Arona said, I'll give it to you. And the Bible says, Arona as a king gave unto David the king. And the point I'm trying to stress here is this. Because Arona was a great man, because he had the threshing floor, uh, because he had the oxen that could be sacrificed and the instruments that could be used for the wood, he was able to give liberally and was willing to give liberally to the king. A poor person can only give a very small gift. I remember when I was in London in our church there, there was a young couple in the church. Now they were very simple-minded and they discovered it was my birthday. And I don't like people knowing my birthday. I know you wish people a happy birthday. Uh, as long as my family know, that's enough. As long as they buy me a present, that's even better. But uh, I don't like everybody else uh, coming, especially in church, wishing me a happy birthday. Anyway, that's by the way. They stopped me when I was coming down from the pulpit to the door to shake hands with everybody. They stopped me and they gave me a gift. It was worth about a pound. About a pound, if it even cost a pound. But because they hadn't much, it was something important. It was something, you might say, touching. That they cared and were willing to wish me that happy birthday to give me a gift. But it was small. Small in comparison with what I might have received from somebody else of greater means. Well, Arona here, he was a wealthy man and as a king, he gave unto King David. But then take it to another level, from the poorest gift to the highest of gifts. Our God is so great that he can give us something far beyond our imagination. Think of what God is. Think of how great he is. We read in the book of Job, the words of Zophar the Namathite, he asked, canst thou by searching find out God? Canst thou find out the Almighty to perfection? He says, 
It's as high as heaven. What canst thou do? Deeper than hell. What canst thou know? The measure thereof, he tells us, is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. That's how vast God is. And that's only a little indication of his ways. We're told in Psalm 147 and verse 4 that uh, he, he telleth all the stars. That word telleth. It's an old word which means to count. He counts all the stars. He calleth them all by their names. We don't even know how many stars there are in the universe. With our most powerful telescopes, with our mightiest astronomers, we don't know how many stars, billions, trillions, quadrillions, quintillions, we have no idea exactly how many. But God counts them all. And he has a name for every star. How great, how mighty God is. You think of how he divided the Red Sea, how he divided the River Jordan. Think of how he provided manna for three to five million people for 40 years. They didn't have supermarkets to go to. When they consumed their food, say on a Sunday evening, there was nothing in the larder. There was no supermarket. They had to depend on God giving the manna the next day. Then miraculously, on what we would call Friday, he gave them twice as much. If they kept any over on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday, and so on, then it bred worms, it stank. But if they kept it over on the Friday night, it didn't stink. And they could have manna enough for the Saturday, their Sabbath, uh, and, and no, no manna fell. This is a wonderful thing. No manna fell on the Sabbath, but twice as much fell the day before. They got used to that, you know. They got used to it. So mighty a miracle that occurred on a recurring basis for 40 years. They got used to it. And they even became uh, despising of it. And they said, our soul loatheth this light man. A gift from God. It's called angel's food. God gave it to them for 40 years. He gave them water out of the rock. Then think of how Christ walked on the sea. How he stilled the storm. How he healed the sick. How he cast out evil spirits. How he raised the dead to life. God is very great. That's the point I'm trying to get across to you. In Psalm 145 and verse 3, we read, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. In other words, you, you cannot, you can't measure God. He is infinite. And as the Catechism says, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. In his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. We're dealing with one who is absolute. We use the word absolute in a very limited sense. And there's no limit to absolute. You cannot, you cannot draw a line and say there's the extent of God's greatness, the extent of God's power, the extent of God's love, the extent of God's holiness, the extent of God's justice. No, God is infinite. God is absolute in all his perfections. And you see how, how wonderful God is in his works of creation. There's a beautiful book written by Professor Stuart Burgess called Hallmarks of Design. 
And he has many wonderful examples of the power of God. He picks out one, well, he picks out others too, but he picks out the camel that is known as the ship of the desert and shows how wonderfully suited the camel is to traveling through the desert. He shows that its body temperature will go down at night time so that it doesn't freeze or get shivery. It goes up in the daytime so that it doesn't sweat. It has a slim body so that the sun has a very small area to contract its rays so that, again, the camel doesn't overheat. It contracts its urine so that it isn't losing fluid all the time. It loses a limited amount through its urine and it's capable of drinking in 100 litres of water, that's over 20 gallons, in under 10 minutes. You try that. Well, don't try it, because it will not work for you. Uh, Then it has wide feet. A horse has narrow feet, but the camel has wide feet, and that means it doesn't tire so much. You're walking in sand, you know how it is, uh, how you're sinking, and it's far harder than to walk across a field or to walk across a track. Walk across the sand, and you're sinking in the sand, and you get tired more easily. The camel has wide feet, so that it doesn't get tired so easily. Its nostrils close over in a sandstorm uh, to keep it from inhaling sand. Same with its large eyelashes, and it has an extra eyelid uh, to keep the sand out of its eyes in a storm. Its lips are rubbery. You know, if you're eating prickly vegetation, you're going to have your lips cut. Well, it has rubbery lips. It has a long night. Uh, neck, sorry, to reach high vegetation, and it has long legs to keep its body from the burning sand, or to keep it as far as possible from the burning sand. And, And if you bring all these things together, you see again how great God is. Don't we sing it? How great thou art, how great thou art. And the gift that Paul is speaking of here is so very special. Because it comes from God, the infinite and the absolute God. It's incomprehensible because it's God who's giving it. The incomprehensible God is giving this incomprehensible gift to us. Yes, we can grasp it, but can we fully understand it? Of course not. And now I want to say something more. I want to say that it is incomprehensible because of what it cost because of who or whom he gave it to, and because of what it does for us. Incomprehensible because of what it cost. Let's take you, and I don't want you to turn to it, but to John 12 and verse 27. There we find Christ a few days before he goes to the cross, and he speaks about trouble in his soul. He says, now... Is my soul troubled? Troubled. We've all had trouble of soul. Deep trouble of soul. Uh, We've been tossed about. We didn't know what way to go. Different things have caused trouble of soul. Conviction of sin causes trouble of soul. A problem that seems insoluble causes trouble of soul. A sudden bereavement or a sudden piece of information 
concerning an illness that we have or someone that we love dearly has, it causes trouble of soul. When Christ speaks of trouble of soul, you can see how deep it is. And he asks himself a question and he speaks out loud as he's doing it. Now is my soul trouble, he says, what shall I say? What am I going to say to this trouble of soul? And then he tells us what he might say. Father, save me from this hour. He's thinking of the cross. And then he says, but for this cause came I unto this hour. Can you imagine what it cost Christ to deal with the problem of our sin? We see him in Gethsemane sweating great drops of blood, praying that if it's possible, this cup might pass from him. And we see him, of course, on the cross at the darkest hour. And it is dark physically. And he cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I was thinking about that. And I was thinking, greatly as Christ was troubled because his father turned away from him when he was bearing sin, Christ would never have wanted any mitigation of his sufferings. He knew. He knew what he had to do. And when he cried out, yet he never hesitated, he never pulled back, he never stopped until the work was complete. I often quote the words of Joseph Hart. He was a famous preacher and a, a famous poet, we might say, a writer of hymns. And Joseph Hart, who was a minister in London, said that Christ bore all incarnate God could bear with strength enough but none to spare. Stop and think about that statement. He's saying that Christ God in flesh, because that's what incarnate means. In Christ bore all that God in flesh could bear with strength enough, just enough, but none to spare. That tells you how difficult it was for the Lord Jesus Christ to save you and me from our sins. Now, I know it's an uninspired man making that statement, but if you look at the whole tenor of Scripture in the account of Christ's sufferings, and his pleas to his father, you have to say, Joseph Hart has hit the nail on the head. People who think lightly of the cross, who think lightly of salvation, and think that they can get into heaven by their own works, they fail to see the enormous cost that it was to Christ to deal with our sins. How, how enormous. Uh, and if you're saying that you can get to heaven by yourself, by your church going, by your good works, by your family background, you're really saying that all that suffering and all that enormous cost was unnecessary. Christ didn't need to do it because you and I, we could have managed it without his help. Could we? Of course not. The Bible says that salvation is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So you see what it cost. But then think of to whom this tremendous gift of salvation in Christ is given. It's given to enemies. Uh, while we were yet without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. And, and he died for enemies. I'll pick out one. 
Saul of Tarsus. We think of Saul in glowing terms today. We think of him as the mighty Apostle Paul, the greatest Christian who ever lived. We can think of him and all the work that he did in the service of Christ, all the sufferings. You read through 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and you discover there he was shipwrecked on three different occasions. He was three times beaten with rods. He spent a day and night in the depths of the Mediterranean Sea. Not right down in it, but in the sea itself. A day and night in the deep. That is staggering. It is hard to take in. You think of all the sufferings of Saul, of Tarsus, and he, or Paul as he became known. And then you think of the danger he was constantly in. Perils in the wilderness. Perils in the city. Perils among false brethren. And then he says, what rested upon his spirit, the care of all the churches. And you say, what a mighty man he was. But let's take you back. Let's take you back, say, 30 years to what he was like before he met with the Savior on the Damascus Road. We find him in Acts chapter 9, breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. And that expression, breathing out, might equally have been translated breathing in. In fact, it is literally breathing in. He's breathing in hatred. And he would willingly, he would willingly have nailed one of those nails into the hands of Christ. He would willingly have nailed nails into his feet. He would willingly have plaited that crown of thorns and placed it upon the brow of Christ. And yet, think of this. The Lord Jesus Christ died on Calvary's cross for Saul of Tarsus, his bitter enemy, the one who would have happily watched him die. In fact, maybe did happily watch him die. The one who was seeking to wipe out the religion that Christ had established upon this earth. The religion of salvation by the grace of God through the cleansing of the blood of the Son of God. Yes, Saul would gladly have uh, taken that uh, man that God-man, and he would have torn him to pieces, even with his own bare hands. What, what a tremendous thing it is that Christ died for someone like Saul. But let's take it closer home. I did emphasize this morning the wickedness of our hearts. Your heart, my heart. Deceitful above all things, Jeremiah calls us, and desperately wicked. The heart, deceitful, more deceitful than anything. We hate deception. We hate to be deceived. Well, our heart deceives us. Our heart deceives our fellow man. It doesn't deceive God. But if we could deceive God, in our hearts we would do so. Don't do so. Deceitful above all things. And desperately wicked. And we're told, who can know it? Who really understands himself? Sometimes you hear people when they do something that's wrong and evil uh, and they, they try to make excuses of them for themselves. They say, that's not me. I'm not really like that. Of course they're like that. They wouldn't have done it. They wouldn't have said it if they hadn't been like that. And you and I, that's what we are like. 
were sinful. And just as Christ died for Saul of Tarsus, so Christ died for people such as you and me. He died for sinners. He didn't die for good people. He didn't need to die for good people. In fact, there weren't any good people to die for. He died for the lost. He died for the guilty. And he said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. In no way, in no way does any person deserve salvation. And so we see how incomprehensible this gift is because of the enormity of its cost, because of the unworthiness of the recipients of this salvation. When you receive Christ as Savior, you do so admitting that you're a sinner, confessing that you are guilty. But then we might say it is incomprehensible because of what it does for us. And I want to pick out another individual. I want to pick out a lady in the Old Testament. Her name is Rahab. You follow that line of Rahab through the Old Testament and through the New Testament, and you'll find two words many times attached to her name. The last two mentions of her, those two words are there. Hebrews chapter 11, by faith Rahab. James chapter 2, Rahab. Likewise, Rahab. And then the two words, Rahab the harlot. A fallen woman, fallen deeply into sin. She lived in the city of Jericho, a city that a curse was pronounced upon at the time or even before the time of its destruction. Cursed be the man before God, Joshua said, that buildeth this city of Jericho. He shall lay the foundation thereof, he says, in his firstborn, and he'll set up the gates in his youngest. What Joshua is saying there is, if someone dares to build this city again, when he starts the building, his oldest son will die. When he finishes the work, And sets up the gates to show the work is complete. His youngest son will die. And we believe that all his other children would die in between times. Hyle the Bethelite dared to defy God. And he suffered exactly what Joshua had prophesied he would suffer. Here's a wicked city. It's going to be the first city that's destroyed by the children of Israel. And in that city is one of the worst citizens and it's Rahab the harlot. She has led other people into sin. She has disgraced her family. Respectable women will not allow their husbands or their sons or their brothers to go anywhere near her home. She corrupts men. She corrupts older men. She corrupts younger men. She's a sinful, fallen, evil woman. Now that woman did not deserve to be saved. I'm not saying she's worse in heart than you or me. not saying that. But I'm saying, I'm picking her out. She didn't deserve to be saved. But she heard something amazing. She heard that the children of Israel had crossed the Red Sea and God had divided it. That was at the very start of the pilgrimage of the Israelites. Then she heard something that happened 40 years later. 
I'm not saying she was living through that 40-year period. I don't think she was. But she heard about the earlier incident. And then she heard about something that happened in her own lifetime. She heard about the defeat of two kings on the eastern side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, two mighty kings. And I think she probably heard a lot more in between times. She probably heard about God supplying the manna, about God uh, giving water out of the rock. She may well have heard that the children of Israel's clothes didn't get old and, uh, and fall to pieces, that their feet didn't swell in 40 years, uh, that their shoes didn't wax old. She may have heard that and many other things. But what she heard was bookended uh, by the crossing of the Red Sea, the drying up of the waters, and the defeat of Sion and Og. And she says to the spies who came to her home, when we heard these things, there remained no more spirit in us. Your God, she says, is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now here's the glorious thing. Rahab got saved. The Bible says by faith she received the spies. And I'm going to suggest something strange to you here. I'm going to suggest that her wickedness was used by God, her extreme wickedness was used by God to bring deep conviction. I think she may have reasoned this way. She thinks, well, this city is going to be destroyed, the God of heavens almighty, and we are a wicked people. We're going to be destroyed. They're marching towards us. And if there's one person, because of what I have done, and the disgrace I've brought to my family, and the sin that I've spread across the city, if there's one person that deserves to be judged and to be cast into hell, I am that person. And she came to repentance. And Pink, in his commentary, points out that by the time the spies had arrived, there was a change that had taken place in her life. She's mentioned as having the, the flax on the rooftop. And flax is associated with a virtuous woman in Proverbs chapter 31. So instead of earning money by nefarious means, she's living a virtuous life, the life of a godly woman. She has repented. Now she has a concern for her family, for she wants the spies to save her father and mother and her brothers and sisters and all that they have. And she works laboriously in the short interval that she has to gather them all into her house that they might be saved. And she was rescued and her family was rescued. And here's the interesting thing. She was not only saved, but she became the wife of a chief prince, the prince of the tribe of Judah, Salmon, uh, whose father was uh, the, the, the man uh, who who numbered uh, the children of Israel, one of uh, the, the leaders, in fact, the leader of the tribe of Judah in that numbering. And Salmon was his son. She marries a prince. How, how could that be? A prince, a fallen woman, she marries a prince. She has had such a transformation in her life. And then more beautifully still, we might say, she became the mother of Boaz. That's that mighty man, that virtuous man, that very great and godly man that we read of in the book of Ruth. She was his mother. You'd say, why would Solomon touch her? Because of her past. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanseth us from all sin. I know the blood hadn't been shed, 
But in the mind of God, it was absolutely certain that that blood would be shed. And on the strength of the shed blood of Christ, she was cleansed from all her sin. She became the great-grandmother of King David and an ancestor or ancestress of the Lord Jesus Christ. May I say this to you? Rahab must have been amazed. She couldn't explain it, how such a change came over, why God should show mercy to her. But can you explain, if you're saved, why you're saved? Can you not look around you and see others as good as you are, maybe better? And they're not saved. They grew up with you. You worked alongside them. You were children playing with them. And yet they're not saved. And you are saved. It's incomprehensible that we should be saved. It's incomprehensible because of all that God does for us, taking away our guilt and our sin, Delivering us, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, from so great a death. And then opening for us uh, the door to glory. Uh, Back in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we read that we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. We don't realize how glorious heaven is. And we won't until we die. And in a split second, I would think that's even a long time. In a split second, in a split second or less, we may leave suffering. We may leave sorrow here. But when the call comes, we'll be absent from the body and we'll be present with the Lord. And of course, there's a resurrection day coming for the people of God. Resurrection coming for the ungodly. But the people of God will rise with a body that is perfect. A body that is as perfect as the soul that is perfect in glory. Body and soul joined together. Beauty of soul. Beauty of body. And worshipping a glorious, and wonderful and magnificent Savior. I say... What an amazing gift is spoken of here. And the apostle says, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift, his indescribable, his incomprehensible gift. The hymn writer said, was there a gift like the Savior given? No, not one. No, not one. Will he refuse us a home in heaven? No, not one. No, not one. You might say, why does God do that? He does it for love, his, the love of his heart. And, and it staggers me because God has always loved his people. In Jeremiah 31 and verse 3, he says, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. We sometimes think of that in, in stretching out into the future. For eternity, I will be loved and God will never forget me. He'll never forsake me. I'll always be happy in his presence. But that love stretches back into eternity past. Chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And I finish by asking, what should our response be to such a gift? And I say to you, take it. Take it. In Revelation chapter 22, we are told, the spirit and the bride say come. The spirit is the spirit of God. The bride is the church. 
And on behalf, I might say, of the church of Christ, I'm saying to you, come if you've never come. Come to Christ. Come and taste and see that the Lord is good. And then it says as well uh, that let him that heareth say come. If you've heard the gospel and you've received Christ as Savior, then you're to say come. You're to invite others and witness to others to the Savior. Let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Take it. Take Christ. What more should we do in response? We should be thankful. We should be thankful. Notice how Paul puts it. Thanks be unto God. So many people grumble and complain and spend their lives dissatisfied. Even many Christians, they're never satisfied. There's always a fault Maybe a fault with some other Christian. A fault with the church. A fault with the preacher. Be thankful. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. And then show your gratitude by surrendering your life. Doesn't Paul say, on the strength of all that the Lord has done, in describing his great salvation in Romans, in verse 1 of chapter 12 he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Yes, show your gratitude by surrender, by serving God. Show your gratitude by telling others of the Savior that you have found. And remember, there's no other gift, no other gift that is equal to this great gift. It is indescribable, it is incomprehensible, why, Lord, you should say? Why me? Why me? Well, take it. Take it. Be grateful. And give yourself to the Lord. If you're not saved, come. Come taste and see. The Lord is good. We can recommend him with our whole heart. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we pray that thou wilt apply thy truth to all our hearts. Thank you for this unspeakable, this incomprehensible gift. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for all that he means, all that he has done. Magnify his name in the salvation of the lost. Hear and answer prayer. Send us forth from this house with thy blessing. Let thy hand be upon us today. Let thy hand be upon us in the days of this week. And Lord, as we come to the end of one year and the beginning of another, may we determine that we will serve thee. May those who are unsaved determine to receive thee. May the blessing of God that maketh rich and addeth no sorrow with it be the portion of every child of God this day and in the days that lie before us. For Christ our Saviour's sake we ask. Amen.